That's good to get an amen. Uh, we, are, um, we are looking at the Gospel of Luke. Uh, we've, been, we've been in this study for a while, and we're talking about the end game. And that's not just the ending of this series or of this sermon, but the way that we're going to end up life on this earth. Whether it's the end of our journey on this earth, or whether Christ comes back. And um, either way, we are living in between the resurrection of Jesus and his promised return. And when we, when we really stop and grasp that, it ought to put everything in perspective, right? It ought to put everything in a certain kind of perspective so that we understand what our real goals need to be. And then that ought to shape why we do things like just showing up here today. We're not just checklisting, but we're here because this is a rehearsal for the end game. We're we're getting ready so that we can play out the rest of this game, the rest of the plan, the mission that God has in mind. And I want to show you that too because in uh, in in the text today, Jesus makes an important turn and goes to Jerusalem. And it's a critical point at which his ministry changes, and he is definitely in the end game of his mission for God leading up to the cross and the resurrection. But I want to get into some other important stuff. Like, I didn't know if you were aware of this or not, but this week it's been an important week for donkey rights. Yeah. You didn't expect that, did you? Yeah, the... Uh, it, it, donkeys have gotten uh, more rights because this week I just heard on BBC News that uh, on the Isle of Santorini in uh, out there in the Aegean, uh, Greek island, they uh, they have this practice of the donkeys taking uh, tourists from the cruise ships, and then they ride the donkeys up the 520 steep steps that go up to the city of Santorini, and they've been doing this for decades, and they realize just how hard it is on the donkeys because those steps are so steep and it's, it's hot. Uh, it, it did humor me that in the, uh, uh, in the article it said sometimes they have to work in temperatures above 80 degrees Fahrenheit. And I'm like, oh, yeah, it's so hot. And, um, and Tourists are getting fatter and fatter, and uh, that doesn't help the donkeys. And so finally they, uh, they, they, they made some changes to the rules, and the donkeys don't have to work as long, and they get water breaks, and they get haircuts so that their mane's not all shaggy. And they had all of these uh, statements from tourists who were talking about this, some of them saying, oh, yes, I could see that the donkeys were being mistreated. I could see that uh, the donkeys weren't being taken care of, and it was terrible the way that the keepers were beating the donkeys and mistreating them. My favorite was from someone who said, I was talked into doing it, and the whole time I felt guilty like I was doing something wrong, and the whole time I was riding the donkey, I could tell the donkey just seemed very sad. Well, now, I hadn't thought about that, and I thought, how do you know if a donkey is sad? Uh, I mean, there's a reason why Eeyore's a donkey. I mean, he's, uh, he's sad. And I, I, I did a little research, and, and here you go. The donkey uh, over here on your left is a sad donkey. The donkey on your right is a happy donkey. 
happy donkeys wear hats, okay? So that's how you can tell the difference. I didn't know if you knew that it was an important week for donkey rights because donkeys don't make it into the news very often, unless you're talking about Democrats, but that's a different kind of thing. That's their symbol. They picked that, not me, okay? So don't, 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 don't hold me accountable for that. Um, but you, you, you tend to overlook such things in the news. I know that I do, and it just happened to pop up on my news feed. But it made me realize that if you're not paying attention, you might miss that there's a donkey in the story in the text today. And I think I, I realize that I, myself, I have just passed on by this because I know that Jesus has got to get into Jerusalem and all of this talk about riding a donkey and what it means and Old Testament prophecy fulfillment there may be a whole lot more going on here. So if you want to join me in Luke 19, I want, I want to read, and I want to make uh, just three observations here. If you pick up in uh, verse 28, um, Jesus is told a parable, and then Luke says, Jesus went on toward Jerusalem, walking ahead of his disciples. As he came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives, and that that matters. The fact that these villages are near the Mount of Olives, that matters. We're going to come back to that. So he sent two disciples ahead and said to them, go into that village over there. As you enter it, you will see a young donkey tied there that no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks, why are you untying that colt? Just say, the Lord needs it. So they went and they found the colt just as Jesus had said. And sure enough, as they were untying it, the owners asked them, why are you untying that colt? And the disciples simply replied, the Lord needs it. So they brought the colt to Jesus, and they threw their garments over it for him to ride on. Let's just pause right there for a second. I, I don't know about you, but I've, all, I've, often, I've often wondered about this. And when I was reading it carefully, I wondered about it even more. How does Jesus know that there's up there in the village there will be a, a, a donkey, a colt, tied to a tree? I know, right now you're saying, well, because he's Jesus and he knows these things. Okay, look, there's no indication that this is Jesus acting supernaturally or acting with some sort of divine power. Remember, Jesus is also, he made, he's made human in every way that you and I, he doesn't just, you know, he can't, he's asked by Satan to turn rocks into bread, but he doesn't. So in some ways, when he knows people's hearts, uh, he is working from a human perspective. So I don't see any indication that this is Jesus using some, did he set it up before? hand and arrange for that donkey to be there? I mean, I'm reading Luke and I'm wondering, Luke, why? Why, why is this little narrative in there? What's the, what's the whole point of this? Is, just, is this just some clever way for the disciples to, uh, to, to snitch someone's donkey and, and nobody know about it? It's like, well, Jesus, that belongs to somebody. Eh, just tell them the Lord needs it. Trust me, no one will ask questions if you say that. Luke's clue is that this is in the villages of Bethany and Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives 
is a very significant place for the people who are expecting the Messiah to show up. You see, in the days of Jesus, everybody is waiting for the Messiah. They know that the Messiah is going to come in, and there's a lot of different expectations that people have. Some think that he's going to be the national hero, the champion, who's going to save them from the Romans. Some think he's going to be the greatest teacher since Moses. Some think he's going to be a new prophet like Elijah. But everybody's got this expectant hope. Some groups like the Pharisees and Sadducees have tempered their expectations. And they've accommodated to the culture around them in some interesting ways. But I imagine... That, that Mount Olives was, uh, was important, by the way, because the prophecies all said that the Messiah would come from the Mount of Olives. By the time of Jesus, that was so rooted in the Messiah expectation that when you mentioned the Mount of Olives, it would be just like me saying to you, the pearly gates or the last trumpet. You know what that means. If you don't, then you, you, it it's about time to learn. Those are symbols for the end. For them, it's Mount of Olives. Now, the other thing they expected is that the Messiah would come in as a Prince of Peace. And that was based on this passage in Zechariah 9. Zechariah the prophet, centuries before Jesus, says, Rejoice, O people of Zion! Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he is humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. He's not charging in on a war horse, but he's coming in just very casual because peace is going out in front of him. There's no need for him to come in like a warrior. He is the prince of peace, the king of peace. Now, one of the things that you did in their culture, too, was whenever an animal was set aside for a religious purpose, that was a kind of sacrifice. You are setting it up for something sacred. Just like uh, the, the, the animals that bore the ark were, were animals that had never carried anything else before. Well, likewise, this donkey's never been ridden before. That's why it's the cult of a donkey. It has one special purpose. To be the, uh, the donkey that carries the Messiah, the king, into Jerusalem. Now, if you had that as your expectation, and you lived in a village on the Mount of Olives, wouldn't you want to be ready if the Messiah shows up? And wouldn't you want to have the donkey's colt that would take the Messiah into Jerusalem? You might indeed. So I wonder, and I can't prove this, but I wonder if every household around there had little donkeys tied to trees set aside so that no one would ride them. It's like, put that aside. Why? That's for the Messiah. Just like today in the Passover, the communities that celebrate the Passover, some of them will put out a chair for Elijah. Why? Because Elijah is supposed to return. So we're waiting for Elijah. You know, if you stop and think about it, that, that, that donkey's not that unimportant at the beginning of that story. And, and to be able to give the answer, the Lord needs it, 
means this is the day. This is the day that the Messiah is here. He's riding into Jerusalem. And look what happens after the disciples say the Lord needs it. Um, They put their garments on the colt. And as Jesus rode along, the crowds spread out their garments on the road ahead of him. And when he reached the place where the road started down the Mount of Olives, all of his followers began to shout and sing as they walked along, praising God for all the wonderful miracles they had seen. Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. They're ready. They're ready for this day. They've been waiting for this. He's asked for the donkey. We've been waiting for this day. We've had that that little colt tied up over there, just hoping the Messiah would get it. There they go. He's going into Jerusalem. This is it, folks. It's Messiah Day. And so naturally, they're going to sing. I mean, there's no script. They don't have to round a bunch of people up. It's like, oh, Jesus is riding into Jerusalem on the Messiah. Can we get a few of you together here? Why don't you three, you three over here? Uh, you're a good singer. We want you right here. Now, which song are we going to do? Uh, you know, just put it. Okay, number 782, 782. You know, blessed is the Lord. They don't have to do all that. They're just, they know what to say. They know what to say. Blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. These are old words, but they're saying them like they knew. They own these words. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. But then the worship police show up. And the worship police cry foul. Uh, You know what Pharisees dressed like, right? They had shirts that had black and white stripes, and they had little yellow handkerchiefs in their pocket that they would throw during worship whenever somebody committed a violation. That's not true. Uh, But it's the way they acted. Some of the Pharisees among the crowd said, Teacher, rebuke your followers for saying things like that. Things like what? Like blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord? How is that offensive? Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven? How is that offensive? Well, for the Pharisees, it might have been offensive, and I'll give you a few possibilities. It might have been offensive because they didn't want anyone thinking that they were um, not, you know, that they were rebels and trying to oppose the rule of the Romans that that, uh, that, that Herod was the rightful king, and they could trace his lineage, and they could show that Herod. And so, no, no, they weren't causing trouble. They weren't trying to stir anything up. They didn't want anybody to get anxious. They don't want the Romans to come down on them. People go out here and shout stuff like, you know, blessings on the king who comes in peace. Next thing you know, they're going to think we're a bunch of terrorists out here. So, teacher, rebuke your people for saying stuff like that. Peace in heaven, oh, peace on earth. I mean, you know, let's, let's talk about peace on earth. Peace in heaven's fine, but peace on earth. So teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying stuff like that. Glory in highest heaven. Yes, glory is in heaven, not on earth. We can't ascribe anything on earth to heaven. So you've got it wrong. Teacher, rebuke your disciples for saying stuff like that. 
too often just the natural the natural expected expression to the enthusiasm that God is at work is shut down by this spirit of the Pharisees. And it's, it's not helpful. You know, for you and I, we, we, we know that the Messiah has come. It's not going to be a problem for us to say, blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in highest heaven. I do remember uh, growing up that there were, uh, there were edited songs. Songs that had strange pieces of tape in the hymnal because they were changed. And when you asked questions like, well, why has that been changed? No, 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 don't ask, don't ask questions like that. You just accept it. But if, you, if you're a particularly persistent, uh, nosy, annoying little person like me, you keep asking questions and, and then finally you're told, well, you see, it doesn't say our Lord will come to this earth some sweet day because he won't actually come back. He'll be like three feet above it and won't. I'm like, really? We're messing up songs because of technicalities? What's going on here? No, and the thing is, no one's paying attention to the words anyway, which is another problem. But you don't have to do that if you've been ready for the Messiah to show up and you've set aside a donkey for this day, and you're just excited. If the Lord's day is the day that we set aside and we say, this is going to be good, God's going to get glorified. I mean, not, not showing up like the worship police, but showing up ready and excited that God may change lives, that God may change my life, that God may, work, may, God may make something clear to us, that God may encourage us today, that God may... Even hold us accountable, and we need to confess something or repent of something, but that is also worthy of praise because it means that God's going to make us more righteous. He's going to make us more right. Now, if we are talking about the end game between Christ's resurrection and his return, how often do we stop and think that this, this worship time, and I know all of life is worship. But times like this, any time that we set aside, it's just like setting aside a donkey, sacrificing it. Any time we set aside time, how much do we stop and think, you know, this is all about getting ready for his return. And is the thought of that return something that just strikes terror in our heart? Or is it something that encourages us to be ready and to think, what if we are the ones alive on earth when that happens? Wouldn't that be incredible? But we may back off of the announcement of Christ's return for a lot of reasons. It may be because too many people have turned it into a uh, kind of a fearful campfire story. Oh, you better watch out. You better not cry. You better not pout, and I'm telling you why. Jesus Christ is coming back sometime, and you don't know when. You see, and, and the more we do stuff like that, the more we turn it into a fearful narrative. Now, it's one we need to respect, because that's final judgment. But as the people who are ready, we can say like they did you know, in the, in the earliest Christian community, things like, Maranatha, come back soon, Lord. We're ready because we know and we trust that when God's ready, then it's going to be good. 
And we can be like those people living on the Mount of Olives that you know they were thinking, well, boy, you know, we're at ground zero of where the Messiah comes back. And so they lived with a certain expectancy. But we may want to, or we, you know, I, I, I don't think, I, you know, I don't think we all play worship police, but I think sometimes we're, we're kind of afraid of the nitpickers. We're afraid of the, of the worship police. We're afraid of the people who call it out. And it's like, you know, I don't want to be doing it wrong. And I don't want to upset anybody. And talking about the coming of the Lord. And, you know, and then you can get caught up in the whole scenario. How is it supposed to be? Well, am I supposed to believe that he comes first and then there's a millennium or there's a millennium and then he comes second and then there is no millennium? I mean, we've got to get all this right, right? No. He's in charge of it. Yeah. Oh, y'all know the old joke. Are you a premillennialist, a postmillennialist, or an amillennialist? I'm a panmillennialist. What does that mean? I believe everything will pan out in the end. Ha ah, ha. Yeah, yeah. It's a terrible joke. But the point of it is that, you know, I, I mean, I don't know how many people had donkeys right there and how they had to, you know. I wonder if somebody was sitting there on the Mount of Olives saying, you know, now what, is he going to mount from the left or the right? I mean, which, should, should he sit side saddle or what's the proper way for the Messiah to, you know, I don't think they were worried about that because they bust out in songs and they say, hey, the Messiah is here. The Lord needs it. We're ready to go. And Jesus, when the Pharisees tell him, listen, we need to put a stop to this right now. It's getting a little out of hand. Jesus has this very interesting statement. If the crowd keeps quiet, the stones along the road would burst into cheers. And that little phrase has been debated that, that if Jesus did quiet them, that all of a sudden the little rocks would uh, you know, grow mouths like Muppets and all start singing. Some people think that literally happened. Some people say that, no, what it is, is, is the clop, clop, clop of the donkey's hooves is announcing the, in, you know, the Messiah coming in. I don't think it matters. I think that what Jesus is saying is he's saying some things are just true. Some things are just so real that creation knows how to praise. Creation knows how to give glory to its creator. So why shouldn't we? And I think Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, they understand. They're ready. It is natural for humankind to say blessings on the king who comes in the name of the Lord. And really what he's doing is he's inviting the Pharisees to the worship. He's saying, if I stop them, creation's going to give glory. Why don't you join in with the rest of creation and give glory? And we're not told how they reacted which would be interesting to know. But we are told how Jesus reacts. Because I think he knows that this is just the beginning of what he's going to face in Jerusalem. That in Jerusalem you have people who have set up all of the exterior markers and signs of religion, but they don't really praise God. They don't really live with any kind of expectant hope that God's going to do a whole lot. And so he weeps for Jerusalem. He laments. That might be a new word. I think it's a word we need to dust off and recover. You know how I feel about churchy words, that I want to change them. Uh, but I don't know of a better one for lament. You know, it's, it's just a, it's, it's a, it's a big, deep sigh. It's a big sorrow because 
He knows that things could be better, that it doesn't have to be this way. But he knows that Jerusalem, even though the name Jerusalem has in it the Hebrew word for peace, he knows that they do not understand peace. Because they have wrapped themselves into politics. They have wrapped themselves into collusion with the Roman government. They have invested themselves in religious squabbles between them. And do you get the message of the gospel? The message of the gospel is, it's almost you can hear Luke back there in the wings whispering to us, watch out or this could be you. And so Jesus knows this about them, and he knows that it could be better, but he knows it's not going to be because they don't understand the way of peace. Verse 41, as he came closer to Jerusalem and he saw the city ahead, he began to weep. How I wish today that you, Jerusalem, of all people, would understand the way of peace, but now it's too late. And peace is hidden from your eyes. Before long, your enemies will build ramparts against your walls and encircle you and close in on you from every side. They'll crush you into the ground and your children with you. And your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you did not recognize it when God visited you. When the Romans come in the year 70... And raise the city of Jerusalem and tear down the temple. You know where they camped? The Mount of Olives. And the reason why they don't understand it is because they have such arrogance. They have such denial. They think that they're the ones who have to manage worship and praise. Who have to manage the religion of the people. Who have to manage Israel. And it's going to cause them to suffer. And that's what happens when we get so arrogant and so even burden ourselves, overly responsible for everyone's feelings and everyone's attitudes and everyone's actions. All it does is it causes us to suffer. But we want to avoid conflict. Great, do that. You know what you'll do? You'll create more. Uh. And the thing that they're doing is they are backing the wrong horse. They need to be backing the donkey, you know. They're backing the wrong horse because they think that maybe their salvation is going to come through Herod or through the Romans or, 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 or through some sort of uh, new approach, a new appeal to the culture around them or setting up and shaping a particular Pharisee culture that keeps them apart and separate from the other cultures around them but still allows them to appreciate the benefits of the world that they live in. And it would be just so much better if they would just take their garments, throw it on the ground, and join in the song that says, Blessings on the King who comes in the name of the Lord. And then Jesus doesn't have to lament. It's interesting that after his lament, Jesus gets into Jerusalem, and the first thing he does is he goes to the temple. You know, the Gospel of Luke starts in the temple. Do you remember that? There's old Zechariah, the Levite that works there in the temple. He's in the temple. He's the priest. Not a Levite. He's the priest. He works there, and, he, and he's, he's in the temple, and, uh, and he's, you know, he's just going about his duty, doing what he's supposed to do. And then the angel Gabriel visits him. 
And even though, you know, Angel Gabriel, that ought to be enough credibility, ought to be enough credentials for anybody. But then after he's told Zechariah that he and his wife are going to have a child, he says, you know, really, how can I be sure of this? He just became the worship police. He just threw down his little yellow flag and he says, I don't know, Gabriel. Uh, do you have your angel credentials? Are you sure about this? When the, Abel, when the angel Gabriel talks to you, just accept it, okay? Because it, uh, you know, it's pretty clear, especially if you're in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Jesus goes to the temple. He doesn't have anything against the temple. There's no problem with the temple. The problem with the temple is that the people in the temple are doing the wrong thing. And by the way, this is where that donkey becomes important again. Did you see what they're doing? Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people doing what? Selling animals for sacrifices. On the Mount of Olives, they've got this donkey set aside. It's like a sacrificial donkey. It's like, look, you are set aside for one purpose. You're going to be the Messiah's ride into Jerusalem. People on the Mount of Olives, they didn't have any special degree to do that. They didn't have any special credentials. They didn't have a committee meeting on the Mount of Olives. They just set aside, you know, Messiah needs a donkey. We'll set aside one. We could really use that donkey. No, that's for the Messiah. Leave it alone. But then you've got this whole middleman industry that's popped up in Jerusalem, which says, you don't have time to set aside animals in your busy, harassed life to sacrifice to the Lord. We'll do it for you, and for the low, low subscription price of 20 shekels a week, we will give you the animal that you need that's properly made to sacrifice to the Lord. Sounds like a great deal. And you can farm out your faith. There's a pun in that. You can farm out your faith, and you, and you can give it to these guys, and then there's this whole industry going. And Jesus says, that's not how it works. There should not be people between people and God because the king is here. I have arrived. So he starts driving them out and he says, the scriptures declare, my temple will be a house of prayer, but you've turned it into a den of thieves. And after he gets rid of the thieves, what does he do? He teaches daily in the temple. Teaches. But the leading priests... The teachers of religious law and the other leaders of the people began planning how to kill him. But they could think of nothing because all the people hung on every word he said. Why do you think the people are listening to Jesus? Is it because he's super charismatic, he dresses nice, or he rode in on a donkey, or he kicked people out? I mean, he actually took away a, you know, some business for some people. I think it's because he's speaking words of truth. He's speaking words of hope. He's telling them that the Messiah is there. They're hearing the message. They know this is the gospel. It's the same kind of people who were on the Mount of Olives saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the one who rides in. Humble. He's righteous. He's dedicated, but he's humble. Jesus has gotten the people back on their mission. It's not just to maintain a temple engine that keeps things going so that they can get blessings from heaven every once in a while. It's a mission. They're the light to the nations. They're the people that God's going to use to redeem all of creation. They're joining in that creation project that God has, the salvation project. That's what Jesus is teaching. Jesus is teaching them to get ready because everything's about to change. And when you and I know that he's returning, 
That ought to refocus everything that we're doing. It recalculates our navigation so that we say, aha, yeah, 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 we're, we're, we're in the temple church engine business. Let's get back to the mission and what it matters and what, 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 what pleases him. We can keep on maintaining these institutions. Remember, the people were astonished by Jesus because he taught like one who had authority, not like the scribes and the Pharisees. Because the scribes and the Pharisees told people that they were reading the rule book instead of teaching people how to play the game, how to get involved in the game and enjoy themselves. And by game, you understand, I'm not talking negative. I'm talking about the activity, the action. And we can just obey the Lord or we can keep institutions going. Jesus, I don't think this is the only temple that Jesus has taken over. And there may not be a temple in Jerusalem, but Paul believes that you and I are the living stones. Peter said you and I are the living stones that make up the temple of God. Now, if Jesus wants to come in and take over this temple, are we going to let him? Or are we going to plot how we can take it back over? If we do, we'll be backing the wrong horse. And we will bring on suffering. Your body, you yourself, are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Let that spirit have its way. Don't fight it. Don't resist it. I'm going to tell you, it's going to be a lot better. If you give your will to him. Pray with me. Father, I ask that you would teach us how to surrender to you. Jesus isn't coming in as an invader. He's coming into our lives and into our church life as the Prince of Peace. He's coming in humble. He's not coming in as a warrior, but he's coming in as a shepherd. He's coming in as a loving, benevolent king. And so, Father, rather than be resistant, and and Lord, it's just so tough because we've we've been taught to be in control. We've been taught to be in charge. We've been taught that we don't need anything. And instead, Lord, would you just give us enough of your love and enough of your spirit so that we have no problem humbly bowing down and laying out our garments and saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord and invite him in to our life together and surrender ourselves, dying to sin and being given new life by you. Father, I pray that you'll bless us with that this morning. We pray in the name of Jesus, amen. Well, while we're standing this song, it might be your... uh, decision to be baptized or to 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 share something or maybe you just need somebody else to join you in a chorus that says blessed be uh the king that comes in the name of the lord we're going to have shepherds right here they're going to be back in room 100 just let someone know today